Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about movies, ancient history, archaeology, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Elijah Fleming. We're two nerdy academics who research and teach on a variety of topics concerning ancient Greece and Rome. But in addition to being professional nerds, we're also film nerds. We love movies, especially ones about our field, and we love talking about them even more. So today we'll be talking about 300, the 2006 film adaptation of Frank Miller's 1998 comic series of the same name. So we'll start kind of with the the initial question, Eli. Do you dig this movie? I do dig this movie, but I'm embarrassed that I dig this movie. (laughs) Yeah. What was like your, like, when did you, what's your like history with this, this, this movie? I was trying to remember because the last two movies we've talked about, Troy and Alexander, I have very clear memories of going to the theater and seeing that. Uh, But I'm pretty sure I watched like the DVD of 300 in someone's basement when I was like, in college or something i have very vague memories of it mm-hmm. and i just remember thinking wow i didn't think it really looked like that the visuals are so weird and it's something that i think i appreciate about the movie more now <laughs> upon this rewatch mm-hmm. i was like man this looked really cool <laughs> yeah so uh i have a sort of i have an evolving I saw this movie in theaters. I remember because I remember I was hanging out with a bunch of my cousins. We were having like a cousin reunion and we went. So we, I, we would have been like 16 or something like that when this film came out. So they doubt. Yeah. So they got me, they got my older cousins, like got me into the theater. I saw it. I liked it uncritically the first time around. <laughs> yeah. And I think the testimony to this, I actually still have the DVD, the two disc DVD that I found. <laughs> yeah. And I watched it on DVD with the special, I watched the special features too. Nice. Um, there's actually a whole, di- there's a second disc of special features, but it only has like 30 extra minutes. Oh. And I, yeah, but I, as I grew older and particularly as I like got into this field and began sort of really thinking not just about sources in ancient history but also like classics and and history generally i'm increasingly kind of like you said i'm a little embarrassed i liked this film as much as i did yeah because now there's a lot about it that i really don't like yes (laughs) so yeah so i like sort of the big the big themes the big finds that i took down in my notes kind of all blend into each other because this movie is yeah it's it's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things I kind of want to talk about. I want to just talk sort of generally about like the style of the film, because this movie, like in contrast to the last one we just did, Alexander, which had a sort of very strict, mm-hmm. I guess we'll say, for lack of a better word, yeah. adherence to the sort of veracity you're trying to be like, like Alexander kind of plays out more like, like to my mind, like the most well-produced, biggest budget History Channel special sure. ever. Yeah. And I think it reads like that because it's sort of very boring and there's not much in the way of character and plot and things like that. It's got a lot of events, Mm -hmm. but the narrative arc we kind of talked about, like Alexander suffers from, from a lack of narrative and arc. This movie kind of goes the opposite direction. It's only like a year or two later. Mm -hmm. They actually reuse some of the props from Alexander for this movie. I read. Really? And Troy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this is, again, we're, we're coming on this wave of like, early 2000s i didn't even realize it but there's this this sort of slew of sword and sandal movies yeah um you know gladiator troy alexander and then this and this is kind of very different because this one yes has so it's based on a graphic novel rather than trying to sort of depict history and frank miller himself is very upfront about it's not 
the way he describes it, he's, he's rather than sort of turning mystery into history, myth into history, excuse me, which is like what Troy does. Right. It's like takes a sort of mythological thing and kind of historicizes it. This takes history and turns it into myth. And like Frank Miller has talked about, like he kind of wanted it to look more like a Greek vase painting than like a historic, than, which is why he sort of deliberately sort of scraps like any historical clothing, like the armor that the Spartans may or may not be wearing. <laughs> he wants them to look like those sort of nude heroics right. on like a vase or a statue or something like that, which is why everything is sort of dialed up to a thousand. Which it really works visually. That's what's kind of fun mm-hmm. about it is that it is so wild and outlandish and hyper real. There's a sort of mm-hmm. hyper realism that you get with like everybody's crazy like muscles and uh, I've, one of my favorite scenes I think is when all of the ships are like crashing and everybody's cheering mm-hmm. and there's like rock music. It's mm-hmm. this sort of, I don't know, feeling behind the, yeah. the story. It's the spirit. Yeah, yeah. It's like the spirit of the story, particularly mm-hmm. the spirit of the story as it gets reinterpreted later, like the spirit of the story we have now yeah. after hundreds and thousands of years right. of sort of telling it up rather than like the real sort of, battle was probably much less was not probably was much less exciting <laughs> i can say with some confidence yes absolutely <laughs> and i think that's sort of a, it's sort of an interesting move um that they went with Zack snyder for because this is almost a sort of complete shot for shot remake of the graphic novel it's very and you can close to the years yeah mm-hmm. but it does look really cool like the visuals mm-hmm. the cinematography I, I mean, graphic novels are cool. <laughs> yeah. So it works. And then later he would get plugged for The Watchmen, which is, again, mm-hmm. pretty adhered pretty closely to the, yeah. the to the Alan Moore original. And I think it's interesting because I think Zack Snyder is also a director I do not – I'm not overly fond of him. No. I think I think it's a little cliche at this point to say, but he's kind of a director that the, – the common criticism is that he's sort of style over substance. Sure. And I think that kind of works in this movie because partially because he's sort of building off, you know, because he's just staying close to the original graphic novel. But then it really shows up in like Batman Superman, where it's got all these like really sort of painter, you know, masterfully painted. They almost like shots that look like Renaissance paintings right, for Superman's yeah. in like a Christ figure pose and all these people are touching Superman. But there's like there's no connective <laughs> tissue yeah. or like movement. It just looks cool. But it, it kind of that's about it. The, the, a phrase that I wrote down was, it's, it's sort of deeply shallow. <laughs> <laughs> but I think all of those elements work in 300 because it is visually really, really fun. And all of the connected fibers are sort of already there. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. this very uh, short little battle that we can tell this one story of these three days and these uh, mm-hmm. 300 people Like that's Mm -hmm. not trying to be too big in scope, right? Like we're not trying to tell the story of the entire Persian invasion, Mm -hmm. which works. It, yeah, yeah, and also because I had the DVD, I was I would occasionally flip on and off the commentary for for different scenes. I didn't watch it sort of start to finish in commentary, but I, I got a fair amount of it in commentary, most of it, I'd say, and. I thought it was very telling that actually like Zack Snyder's commentary is largely about the technical aspects. Like he'll say like, oh, we like set the cameras up like this, or this yeah. is the way the set was designed to get the shot. Or like, like everybody to the right of this person is actually CGI, <laughs> things like they only use like 
a couple they didn't use actually that they only used like a few gallons of fake blood and a lot of the blood was all like cgi and like, but i think it's i think it was very very telling how sort of in his it seems like in his mind he was sort of primarily concerned with just the like visual mm-hmm. and like sort of technical aspect and then leaving out this sort of other the thing that we're gonna i want to like get into next is the sort of the way this movie deals with history yes well, should we start with, like, the source material for this? Yeah. Yeah, so the main story that we get from ancient history is written by Herodotus. I think there are a few other people, right, who have little bits and pieces of it, and a lot of yeah. later authors... Yeah, like bits from Plutarch. Yeah, later mm-hmm. authors will look back, but a lot of them sort of rework things that Herodotus originally said. And... When I I think I actually saw the movie 300 before I read anything about mm-hmm. the Battle of Thermopylae and just the fact that uh, it's sort of watered down all of this historical mm-hmm. facts that we do see that in the battle in context is much mm-hmm. stranger, I think, um, because it comes after the Battle of Marathon and before or at the same time as the naval battle, Artemisium was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so when yeah. you see it in sort of this long form, it's mm-hmm. not as dramatic. <laughs> no, it, it has... This movie makes it seem like this absolute end yeah, of this the is world. Like the, this is a do-or-die moment yeah. for, for, for Greece, but really this is sort of part of a longer sort of decades long. i mean xerxes his father had beef with the greeks yeah. um for various reasons because they they kind of were meddling in his dominion or there's greek cities kind of under persian rule uh, and and but yeah there's also simultaneously a naval battle happening right off the coast yeah. that the athenians are kind of spearheading but that would sort of undercut because i think another point and then one of the like the comp like probably the most at this point like cliche i've used that word twice already but like overdone sort of like historicism critique is the like well like we're really overplaying the significance of those 300 spartans because there happened there were like a couple thousand other greeks at this battle yeah Um, and like at least some of whom 900 of them were slaves that they forced Mm -hmm. there (laughs) yeah oh yeah i'm gonna get about i'm gonna get to the slave yeah we're gonna get to the slave thing okay in a second yeah but like yeah, yeah the spartans were not the only ones at that battle um mm-hmm. that was not the first big battle of the Persian invasion that was absolutely marathon mm-hmm. and and this wasn't yeah the most this wasn't the dramatic yeah, horrifying this world movie, ending thing that yeah, it's made out this, to be this movie sets it up to be like this i mean this is a little true but th- this sort of battle sort of galvanized everyone to fight the Persians later at Plataea but you know there's all sorts of because if you get into Herodotus, a lot of it's like these complicated inter-city politics of of because yeah. some of the some of the Greeks decide to the Thebes sort of most famously they're like we're gonna facilitate or not we're gonna capitulate mm-hmm. or some want to fight like Athens really wants to fight some don't want to fight some don't want others getting involved they don't yeah there, there's all sorts of like weird politics and rivalries that yeah. this movie really just sort of does away with I think like from a pure storycraft element to the to its benefit. Like I think this yes. movie really just sort of gets it down and this I think this is really the graphic novel we're talking about, but it really For just sure. sort of zeroes in on like a particular story and particularly a sort of mythologized yeah. version because Frank Miller has talked about 
The inspiration for this was an older movie, a 1962 film called The 300 Spartans. That's sort of the original mm-hmm. Thermopylae story. And Frank Miller saw it when he was like six or something like that. And it was this kind of like this 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 moment for him where he's like, oh, like that's so this, this, <laughs> the idea of the kind of heroic sacrifice right. that really drives through this story. And well, like more just on Herodotus himself, whenever we teach Herodotus or when we read Herodotus, it's always things should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, because the man liked to elaborate, as we know. <laughs> yes, the, the sort of two traditions, depending on who you ask, because yeah. he's either he's either the father of history or the father of lies. Yeah, I'm in camp Herodotus. I love Herodotus, <laughs> lies and all, because he, you know, he, he's there's, he's our main source for a lot of Greek history. Absolutely, and he's an important just sort of figure in the field of history. But he also has all sorts of wacky stories about, like, for example. My particular fixation are on things like flying snakes that migrate every year from Arabia, uh, Arabia, Arabia and do battle with ibises uh, in Egypt. And then Herodotus says that he saw the skeletons of the, the remains of this battle, which I've read a lot of great interpretations of either like maybe maybe he saw like these fossils or maybe he saw this. And then one scholar I read was just like maybe his guide was just messing with him. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it, like, you know, some people come down really hard on Herodotus for just sort of just being a peddler of all sorts of like pseudoscience or pseudo history or whatever. And then, but I, I think he's, he has his moments. I think he's great. Yeah. Yes. And I think there's a reason, I think like Neil Gaiman in particular really likes Herodotus yeah, and I think that. storytellers <laughs> are sort of attracted because Herodotus has got a lot of really great sort of story beats. Yeah. He's also kind of famous because he has a nine book history of which that's, ostensibly as he begins it is going to be about the sort of conflict and wars between greeks and persians but then a couple chapters later he's getting into like the religious customs of the egyptians and like he just he's like if i'm going to tell you about this i need to tell you all of this backs all of this other complimentary information which i love but yeah. it's like when you're reading it you're like why what's what's going on digression yes digression and like this movie does kind of it it, it definitely like like Frank Miller kind of cherry picks like the most famous like sort of lines associated yeah. with this movie, like fighting in the shade or um, come and take it, yep. which in Greek is like Molon Labe, uh, which I think the Greek army has. That's like their motto. It's also the motto of other less savory yes. organizations that we're going to get into. But yeah, let's. So yeah, Her, the Herodotus is sort of the shadow of Herodotus is somewhere in the background of this film, but it's very. Famous. Yeah, but I would almost <laughs> think that he would enjoy this version because mm. <laughs> it's just wild it's just wild and it's fun and as out of context as it is i sort of feel like mm-hmm. uh, a guy like herodotus would have been like that's a cool way to tell that story mm-hmm. yeah or maybe even like a playwright would have really dug it like yeah. like aeschylus or something who writes plays about sort of greek and persian wars yeah. just in it sort of it, it it has the kind of yeah it has that it starts sort of in the middle of the story mm-hmm. you get our characters and they there there's a small there's a relatively small cast of characters and it's a pretty tight this movie i think it's about two hours 40 minutes or something like that it's about the length of troy i think yeah does not feel it the does length not of troy. feel that long no and it definitely doesn't feel like alexander length no. i mean alexander's a bit longer but alexander like you feel every every minute. single minute Troy kind of has it's the pacing is is sort of up and down, but this movie is pretty fast paced really all is. the time. Yeah, I almost wonder because another sort of Zack Snyderism is just his 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 love of slow motion, 
And yeah. they're like, if you were to, I, I feel like someone's done this, but if you were to take out all this, like just play all the slow motion in normal time, this movie would be like an hour long. <laughs> That'd be really. It'd be like a tight ninety minutes. Yep. <laughs> so I was thinking, yeah, like on the notion, on the notions for Herodotus and historicity, let's talk about actually a little bit of, let's talk about like the Spartans themselves. Okay. Because all right. That's the main, I mean, in the sort of that triangulation of like history and myth and mm-hmm. legend and like retroflective yeah. views of history. The Spartans in here, and I would say argue in, I would argue into sort of popular cultural today broadly. The Spartans have this sort of status as being these like ultimate, the ultimate badasses. Yeah. Like they're a very, and I think in this movie, they're sort of the ultimate American badass. For sure. Yes. In the, you know, their, their military isms and things like that and the defense of uh what like liberty and freedom and oh my reason. god oh, oh, oh yeah oh, tyranny and mysticism yeah oh my god i can't believe that they we're actually bite- said that at the end of the we're, we're biting our tongues um because we're gonna get but yeah did you when you taught like greek civilization did you do like a did you, did you do did. a big unit on sparta yeah we did a day sort of on sparta and it's a little bit difficult to talk about because we don't have a whole lot of information from the Spartans themselves, right? So most mm-hmm. what we know about Sparta is what other people, other uh, Greeks like the Athenians uh, say about mm-hmm. Sparta. And a lot of times it's not meant to look good. Yeah. So that can be really difficult. But also I think one of the sources that we do have or that people talk about a lot is um, the laws of Lycurgus. Uh, Mm -hmm. supposed to be this really really early lawmaker in sparta but is certainly semi-mythical there probably was a guy named like her and he was supposedly set down all of these big rules that spartans have to follow that they sort of outline in the first few minutes of this movie which is like Mm -hmm. at a certain age boys were taken away from their families and they have to live in this extremely harsh environment and fight with their peers and they're not given food so they have to like steal it um yep. they, there are so many stories about the spartans just like that but they're not supposed to be good <laughs> they're supposed to be disparaging like the spartans are freaking crazy and insane and why are they doing this to themselves <laughs> they have yeah they have a sort of reputation of being sort of these very conservative in a lot of ways like they're they're sort of very reticent very sort of defensive they also have like other reputation for being very sort of austere like spartan lifestyle for your first spartan citizen was incredibly sort of stringent Mm -hmm. uh in certain ways like they only ate this like kind of like bar like this crude barley paste Mm -hmm. and yeah there's i mean they're also sort of famous they're the the word laconic comes from them because they supposedly were very sort of not like quippy but like they had these very short one-liner zingers <laughs> but spartan society itself sounds like a nightmare yes men weren't allowed to live with their wives for large portions of their life until they like reached a certain age or had fought in a certain amount of battles so there's it's almost like they make everyday little things that much harder like they don't feed their children they're supposed to steal the food you're not allowed yeah. to live with your wife so you have to like sneak out to see her and you're not supposed to get caught you mm-hmm. have to like fight well enough and have enough, I guess, slaves to sit at a certain place at a table. Awful. And, and this is all also we're sort of we were sort of we're, we're only in all this we're really only talking about a very small sliver right. of the population. Exactly. The sort of upper crust of Spartan society, because in order if you're going to have a, a culture where, because in most societies, kind of in this time, warfare was kind of 
tied and part of sort of agriculture because people like you couldn't have most people were just sort of farmers of, or, or tradesmen or some kind of you know you had to work for to to live and so in like a place like Athens like military service was like part of your just life but you had another it wasn't your whole life you know you would and so there's a reason like a lot of times like warfare happened in certain seasons because people had to like get back to their houses or their farms or whatever but in Sparta like if you're gonna like entirely dedicate yourself to warfare you need a support you need a support system and for the spartans that support system came off the backs of helots who are just the oppressed slave population living and i've heard estimates or something like it was like 15 helots to every spartan warrior or something like that something crazy they live in a in a very and they're constantly one of the sparta's sort of greatest fears is revolts Mm -hmm. from the helots which happened pretty frequently (laughs) they were and would understandably because there's whole they, they essentially sort of enslaved the 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 uh, the area next next over to them mm-hmm. to sort of work for them so the Spartans could become this warrior society. Yeah, which is like how they can say what is your profession, you know, the other guys I'm a blacksmith or I'm a sculptor and the Spartan profession is war, but only because mm-hmm. they enslaved an entire population to do it. <laughs> yeah, which is the sort of I guess we're, we're we're dancing around but the sort of deep irony and almost sort of myopia of of a vision of the spartans that i think is like crystallized in this movie yes. although it's not restricted to this movie and, and permeates sort of elsewhere but like yeah these kind of the spartans has almost these like that they're almost like proto-colonial americans taking up arms to fight against sort of oppression and tyranny but like <laughs> i mean obviously like there, there's there's this this movie makes a great deal out of the sort of the the Persians are slave or everybody in Persia is slave to the king mm-hmm. and we're free. We're free men. We're Greek free men, which is like deeply ironic oh, because Greek, deeply. you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say Greece is not any, the Greeks had plenty of not freedom and plenty of tyranny both before and after this. Yes. This notion. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And just that any, and I think the same thing in Alexander when we, and Troy, when they say Greece and we sort of talk about the collective Greece mm-hmm. um, that did not exist <laughs> at the time of the Battle of Thermopylae. It was nation states that happened to speak a similar language that was very dialectical across the area. Yeah, and and they all had problems with one they another. All had problems with one another. They were all fighting the Spartans each supposedly. Other. Yeah, the the Doric, which is the the sort of dialect associated with Sparta, was kind of this almost like rube. Di- it's kind of like has like a country hick vibe yeah. to it. The <laughs> Athenians speak Attic, which is kind of the like sophisticated. There's all these other dialects of Greek that come with their own sort of connotations. But yeah, that's actually that's another point I want to talk about is this movie and I think Troy and Alexander I think have this. There's this sort of this like retroflective idea where like the people in the stories like know they're going to be part of the stories. Like everybody yeah. in Troy is talking about it as if they know like the Iliad <laughs> is going to get written. So they're talking a lot about like who's history going to remember mm-hmm. and who's going to be the main character of this. Like yeah. in a way that like people generally don't think about whether because <laughs> no. yeah, they're, they're sort of, at the time they're kind of in they're kind of wrapped up in their own sort of whatever the political or you know squabbles granted there's an element where like achilles is sort of gonna get sort of everlasting glory but but yeah like the the it's like the people in 300 know they're in the movie 300 and i think sort of similar with alexander like they know like it's more about like the people of the future are gonna think about how are they gonna think about us that's like a big reflection i think in all of these movies that we've talked about so far well yeah and i think that sort of plays into the 
very dramatic end of the world nature of this. It's, mm-hmm. It is that sort of reflection of looking back. And I've heard some other historians talk about the Battle of Thermopylae specifically as like one of those alternative histories, like what would have happened if like they failed and would mm-hmm. there even have been a Greece? And it's like, yeah, there would. <laughs> and it's yeah, like, it just would have been different. It would have been slightly different. And uh, yeah. I just, I hate and that this... like determinism going into the story. Mm-hmm. I just... Yeah, the, the, yeah the, like you said, it's like a do or die. Like yeah. if Greece loses, if Sparta loses this fight, then like that's it for democracy and freedom. And we're all going to be living under, which is not like the Persians Many Greeks had sort of Athenians in particular had sort of bones to pick with the Persians for various reasons, so they sure. tend to present them in certain lights. But also, there's plenty of Greeks that had like a deep reverence almost for the Persians. There's biographies they wrote about Persian kings, like Cyrus, for example, who's kind of yeah. the founder, and they kind of talk about him as this model person. Persia itself sort of enjoyed. There's a reason, like in in the Bible, for example, like Cyrus the Great actually comes off as this pretty benevolent ruler because he extends religious freedom. Yeah to Jews uh, living in his empire. There were certain, like living in the Persian empire wasn't like whips on your backs all the time no. in the way that this movie makes it seem. <laughs> it was actually probably relatively fine and probably <laughs> as much or more freedom for like the Ionian Greeks, for mm-hmm. example, who lived in yeah. quote unquote Persian territory. Like that probably didn't change a whole lot for them, <laughs> except maybe who yeah. they were paying taxes to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or places like Egypt remained relatively unchanged for a long period, for long periods of time. And I'll say, again, enjoyed sort of, you know, these are like very sort of developed bureaucratic imperial systems of governments and roads and writing and all this stuff. Your quality of life in Persia would probably be as good, if not better, than say if you lived in, actually, it would definitely be better if you lived in Sparta. I think the quality of life for most Spartans sucked in (laughs) Because people, I mean, people talk about there were certain freedoms that the Spartans enjoyed that were a bit unusual, like sort of famously, like women mm-hmm. had a little bit more autonomy. They like they exercised and when could wrestle with one another. But again, it's all in service of this kind of top down state system, because that is so you can give birth to the healthiest sons possible. Yeah, They're not like free from patriarchy. No, no, they're just sort of operating I, as cogs mm-hmm. within it. <laughs> yes other sort of historians and cultural critics that's like the main bone to pick with this film and i think it's a legitimate one but i think and i think zach snyder and and frank miller like zach snyder i've heard a sort of his sort of defense being something on the lines of like well this is so over the top and so silly like we can't be taking this seriously and i don't really accept that kind of defense because because i think this sort of ideology is it gets deeply ingrained and it gets and can be very pernicious. Yes, I agree. And I sort of see that. And maybe I think that's part of why I'm really embarrassed about enjoying it, this movie, mm-hmm. because I do see this sort of watered down version of the story as being the only part that people really remember. Mm-hmm. Is that like Persians bad, Greeks good, when there was yeah. no Greece and the Persians weren't bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there's another element. I think this is also kind of why why this story, I think, sort of appeals to Zack Snyder, because I think if you watch some of his other films, 
don't know if he's ever officially come out, but I think Zack Snyder's a bit of like a Randian. Like he's kind of into that like Ayn Rand objectivism, oh. personal liberty. Oh. Um, which I feel like if you, I've I've seen interpretations of like Batman v Superman, for example, that kind of get into that. Where like that's kind of like a Randian dilemma, where like Superman's whole the in that movie, the 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 deep philosophical question this movie thinks it's asking or it's not that deep but this movie thinks it's deep yeah is like does superman have an obligation to save people because he's so powerful which is i think is a very like ayn rand yeah and i think like there is a bit of like randianism in this film which i Mm -hmm. I think appeals to like a particular sort of substrate of american audiences interestingly for this movie critics wise it's sort of meh i think it's like a 60 percent on rotten tomatoes something like that critics were kind of like eh, it either they're like it's you know, they're like, it's dumb and either you <laughs> like it or yeah. it's too dumb for me or too over the top or something. Right. And some really kind of, I think, latch on that there were like these kind of pernicious problems about it. A friend of ours actually once described, said, I think he says something like, like this movie, like just like is the reason our profession needs to exist. That's um, not wrong. <laughs> yeah. And there is a sort of particular vision of history that's almost like it almost like it's sort of pseudo fascistic and has like this this sort of this this idea of a very gung-ho freedom against tyranny that is i think very problematic and then the and the creators are not sort of at least frank miller is not unaware i have a little quote from him that he says the spartans were a paradoxical people they were the biggest slave owners in greece but at the same time spartan women had a usual level of rights it's a paradox that there were a bunch of people who in many ways were fascist but they were the bulwark against the fall of democracy again i'm not sure that's true no in fact i don't think it's true at all (laughs) actually to bring in herodotus once again Mm -hmm. there's a famous scene in herodotus where after i think either Cyrus or Cambyses, one of the one of the kings, I think it's after Cambyses dies, and the Persians are debating, what are we going to have our next go? Because the, basically the Cyrus's line is, is done. Right. So what are we going to have our next government be? And there's like three arguments that get put forward, and that's basically oligarchy, yep. democracy, and monarchy. And the, the democratic sort of advocate makes a pretty compelling case, and they all make sort of, at least I mean, rhetorically compelling cases right. for these forms of government. Ultimately, monarchy wins out. Uh, and they go, they get a, the new monarch. But like the idea of democracy wasn't alien to the Persians. Sure, there were democratic states living within their own borders. Absolutely. Conversely, there were tyrannies on the Greek side of things. There were several. Athens had just recently had a big slew of tyrants. Nope. <laughs> so yeah, and again, that that narrative. I mean, this is all sort of deeply couched in probably a theme that we we've talked about. I think with Alexander and a little bit with Troy, but this sort of constructed Western. Yep. idea of civilization mm-hmm. that sort of draws this 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 uncomplicated line from greek democracy all the way to effectively america or other sort of yeah. liberal democracies that's neither sort of historically super sound or all that helpful because no just you know the the, the there's life in the fifth century BC in Greece would have looked very, very different Absolutely. to us. And even the way their democracies worked and what states had, oh. not all states had democracies. Yeah. Not all states had them and they functioned within each other as violently as they sort of worked for <laughs> and against Persia, because in the <laughs> years after some states would ally with Persia against other Greek states. So it's, yeah. it's like, this is not this 
bastion of democracy that we're defending. Yeah. Thebes, <laughs> Thebes in particular got a really bad rap among the Greek cities yep. for, for capitulating. Although in their defense, I think it made sense because if they oh, didn't, they would have been in a world of hurt. And after, ironically, the following war that Sparta is going to fight with Athens, sort of for to be the sort of dominant political player in the Greek world, yeah. The part of the reason Sparta is able to come out on top is with Persian help. Exactly. <laughs> Basically because the Spartans themselves were sort of running out of allies in closer to home and they needed they needed sort of a little extra oomph from abroad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the other thing is like we put ourselves on the Greek side. We like we are rooting for the Greeks. They mm-hmm. are the good guys. Mm-hmm. And sort of at the end of the movie, we have this like defeat of Persia, quote mm-hmm. unquote, but Persia doesn't go away. <laughs> no, they continue to like just kind of hang out. They they didn't invade Greece, at least sort of successfully, but they existed yeah. at least until Alexander would bop along about a, about a hundred years or or more later. Yeah, yeah. We talk about how racist the portrayal of the Persians was. Yes, we can. <laughs> Which it is again something so that when I kind of either I either didn't notice or I think ignored in my teenage years. Yes. Absolutely. Will just like willfully did not pay attention to, but it was really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of the messengers are, are darker skinned people. Yeah. All, of the, all of the non-white people in this. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's so terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Iran hates this movie, understandably. Because this is, remember also, this movie is coming out sort of right in the middle of the Iraq war. So there's even at the time, there's sort of troubling mm-hmm. connotations of, of this kind of East v. West dichotomy that the movie is drawing in, yes. drawing upon. Mm-hmm. And the, the, there was like the argument that this was sort of methodologically preparing the Americans for some kind of invasion, which I think is a bit much. And I think maybe they just sort of, this isn't like a top-down state initiative to like galvanize us to anything, <laughs> at least not in like a, like a systematic way. Well, I will say this is definitely one of those things that gets into people's brains mm-hmm. and sort of stays there as the baseline for how we then build yeah. our knowledge of history on top of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think especially the depiction of the immortals as oh my, yeah. these masked, like sort of faceless entities. Like monsters. And then their masks yeah, they're like, come off, they're like they're inhuman. Like, they're, they're like orcs basically underneath. <laughs> I was just going to say it's creating this black and white mm-hmm. version of a story where we have a side that is obviously human and good mm-hmm. and a, another side that is obviously inhuman and yeah. bad. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's part of the mythologizing of this story, but it's these it's, were people. These were real soldiers. They were human. Yeah, they were like n- normal guys. If anything, like the, the sort of the co- the costumes that like the sort of grunt Persian infantry wear in this movie is like more or less what the immortals yeah. kind of would have been dressed in. They had this kind of one of the famous distinctions that Greeks like to sort of dwell on, and you can see this in Vaz paintings, and they talk about it a little bit. Is that Greeks don't wear pants? Yep. Uh, Persian bar- barbarians, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, meaning yes. people that don't speak Greek. So we are barbarians, but and we also wear yes. pants. So two counts, two yep. strikes against us. Definitely. But yeah, the Persians wear these kind of trousers um, and not just the Persians, but also like the Scythians who kind of lived in like the sort of the Celts as well. The Celts, wore yeah, trousers. further west, mm-hmm. they wore trousers, pattern trousers. But yeah, you see these in Greek art on the vases. They have um, 
like these cool little patterns like they have like eyes or like stripes or checkers i like the eyeball ones those are really cool yeah those are super awesome yeah and the immortals are there's a, a two a two thoughts that are kind of ramming into my head at the same time but um <laughs> yeah i mean they're called the immortals because they had a unit of like ten thousand men and every time one died they just immediately replenished it so it seemed like the unit was always at full strength so it seemed like no one was dying the in the commentary in the special features there was some like sort of they had like historians uh one was a uh, betany hughes who's kind of like a popular british historian she's got a lot of sort of more popular novels about the ancient world mm-hmm. and the other is victor davis hansen oh no yeah do you know him yeah, yeah. he Ugh. yeah so he's like sort of talking on I think he wrote like the forward to this movie. He sort of talks about this movie and I can get the sense that he likes this movie and it makes complete sense because he, for context, is this neocon, essentially. He was big in the Bush years. He wrote a bunch of op-eds about why we should invade Iraq. And lately he's a a Trumpian and has written some columns. He's like a Fox News contributor and has written columns that are bad, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. So he is the one of the sort of historical... Well, not consultant. I don't think not when the movie was made, but afterwards, he's kind of like, he was like talking on the special features. And he is one of those people that absolutely sort of endorses the idea of like Western exceptionalism that I think this movie plays heavily into. Yeah. No, it's sad that um, a lot of fun scholarship, like military history, Mm -hmm. what I think is fun scholarship, has a lot of influence from Victor David Hansen. And I think views like that about ancient warfare specifically really focus on like the 25% of your population that is fighting on the battlefield and really ignores the effects of warfare on non-combatant populations, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is something that's really missing from modern scholarship. So I'm tiny soapbox. (laughs) There's a movement now and actually particularly in in the field of sort of military history and ancient military history of one just sort of physically diversifying because it it was sort of a notorious it's a subfield that even among a sort of notoriously male and white profession is notoriously male and white um sadly cracks in that facade are beginning but there's still a long way to go but also just there's a move in military history to really just sort of get away from the commander's tent kind of style that a lot of like if you read like i have a book that actually was one of the more formative introductions and i was conferring the warfare in the classical world um by john which is a wonderful like sort of illustrations and it's got all these maps and like but it's sort of like that and it was i originally like part of my interest in the ancient world did originate in this kind of stuff like battles and yeah and then as i sort of got into it i kind of i and i I was sort of like but there is a movement in in sort of a lot of more modern scholarship about military history that is exactly in what you're talking about like dwelling on these sort of other aspects of war it doesn't always have to be like the generals in the tents moving blocks around a map right. and the strategies and the weapons and the tactics there's other sort of more human holistic or humanistic tendencies that we really should be talking about when we talk about ancient warfare and Definitely. just like the lives affected by war and all the various sort of multitudes is a huge part of that yep yeah so yeah victor david hansen likes this movie gross i'm even more embarrassed i know this is the oh Tied to the other point I was coming around to, tied to this sort of the the sort of racism, I think, of this movie is the ableism that plays into this. Because not only are the person sort of darker and foreign and barbaric and all these other things, but they're also associated with like 
deformities or like, you know, the Spartans are these sort of perfect specimens. And the one Spartan who's not, Ephialdes is sort of, you know, is a hunchback and, and has these, these deformation, these deformations literally bar him from being a full Spartan because like right. there's a whole bit where he can't lift the shield. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, this movie really sort of revels in the grotesquerie of that kind of thing. Yes. I think I use this word also in Alexander, but it's certainly sort of a, a fetishizing of mm-hmm. non-able bodies. Um, and I remember when I watched that part this time where he can't lift the shield mm-hmm. and thinking that, okay, that's like a legit thing. If you're actually fighting in hoplite formation, you do need your shield to cover the guy next to you. That's legit. But they don't fight like that. I was about to say that like first, oh, no. first, first chance that Leonidas gets, he breaks formation and does yeah. his little, does his little Aristea thing. It's like, Again, I think it that's would like, mean something different if you they were actually, actually fought that way. fighting that way. <laughs> they do for about five seconds. There's like, yeah. I actually do kind of like the initial, like right when the armies meet, there's that bit where all this shoving, and I think that's also like a pretty. We talked about the Alexander Definitely. battle, how mm-hmm. like that's a that probably was what it was like to sort of be in that where it's just this like mass of men and sweat and dirt and blood just kind of shoving against shoving. each other, which mm-hmm. is like feels pretty accurate. Definitely, but then it, it tips back into that like heroizing mythological form where Leonidas busts out and and you know in that sort of famous sequence with the, like I think they had like seven cameras or something like that that they were zooming yeah. in and out of to like get that effect where it's like slows up and speeds down and zooms in and zooms out lord i think that scene is like the perfect example of what an aristea is oh for sure like That's a homeric not, aristea it's not homeric <laughs> yeah he, i mean there's also the like plot point of like he he kind of spurns leonidas just like spurns Ephialtes. And Ephialtes is like 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 swearing vengeance at him, and Leonidas is like, I'm just gonna let that guy go, even though he knows about the secret pass around my back. It's just like a, that's like a, one of those little plot points that because I'm kind of like a, I'm definitely like a person that gets hung up on like little plot points. I'm like, yes. why would he just let him go? Like, couldn't why would he, like, you just let him go? Yeah, like could, like just do something about him because like this is this seems like a huge liability to just like piss off the guy who knows the secret way around your yes, which is also funny the way Herodotus describes. I remember one of the things, if you actually read the Herodotus on Thermopylae, a lot of it, it is like a little, a little less dramatic in a lot of ways, but also like the bit where it's almost like kind of confusing the way, because they actually, they, they station a couple, I think it's the Phocians, but they stationed a contingent of Greeks on this path. And those Greeks, basically what happens when the Persians start coming around the, the back pass, those Greeks see the Persians coming. They're like, oh no, the Persians are coming. So they retreat up this hill to like get a better defensive position and the Persians just walk right by them. And then the Greeks on the hill are like, Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, like maybe they weren't going for us. And then the Greeks get surrounded and then Leonidas sort of, most of the Greeks sort of are sent away. And then the 300 Spartans stay behind along with a few hundred or even thousand other Greeks. Yeah. There's definitely other people there yeah. and it's not just the 300 of them, but yeah, I think the 900 slaves they brought are, <laughs> Hellas, yep. like they forced these people to march all this way. Yeah. I mean, again, like the movie sort of deliberately ignores all that stuff because it would sort of corrupt the narrative that it's trying to to craft. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think like from a storytelling perspective, it makes sense. From a sort of moral standpoint, you know, we, we'll take issue. Yeah, it does make for a good story. Yeah, like it is. You certainly have motivation of characters. You have a very black and white, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, which makes for exciting 
battles, mm -hmm. however incorrect it might be. Yeah, the, it but is the minute you start <laughs> mapping it onto our own lived experience in our real world, then it's for me and I think many others in a profession, we, we start we start to cringe. Yes. Just the, the, the ideal is, yeah, that, that sort of the two edgedness to the sort of that heroization and idealization and sort of like, what's the word I'm looking for? This vision of the Spartans and the Greeks as this sort of yeah. this particular image, which is very myopic, makes for yes. good for good film, but is myopic. And, and also, in, in addition to the sort of the, the tyranny aspect that the that the Greeks are that this people set up as being like completely logical and free of superstition. Although, and then in the movie, it sort of presents the elements like the ephors as this like anchor sort oh, of weighing down the I Greeks about that. and the Oracle. That, that is, they're sort of these backwards old superstitions that are sort of weighing down the Greeks, which is. Again, a sort of retrojection of this sort of yes. teleological view of Western history where we shed our, this is really a product of the Enlightenment, where this idea is like we shed our superstitions and our religiosity and our sort of, you know, praying to the sun or whatever, and we get rid of that yeah. and we start embracing logical isms and empiricism and, and logic. And then, then we get to the Enlightenment and we get like the perfection of rationality or something like that, which is right. misleading, I say. I think yes. I, at the... At, at the best, it's misleading, and at the worst, it's like dangerous view of history. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the weird sort of that was weird. I had forgotten about the entire E Force scene, mm -hmm. and I was kind of like, "What? Why?" Yeah, again, plays um, back into because, the, the ableism sort of element because they're like yes. gross and diseased. But like, that's E Fours were just like a religious mm -hmm. uh, council. This they were yeah honored and you know they were spartans they were i don't know sparta had this very sort of complicated there's you can get on wikipedia and there's a good like visualization of the way the spartan sort yeah, of constitution it's works actually great there's yeah. like two kings and then there's like there's sort of assembly of old men called the grusia and then the ephors and they each basically have different powers and sort of checks over the other one yeah it's sort of interesting yeah very interesting sort of system but yeah i mean also like again like in this movie, the Sparta is not sort of free of superstition, but the Spartans were famously very, very superstitious. There's many <laughs> points in Greek history where the Spartans don't come to fight because they're in the middle of some festival or there's some kind of like auspicious, <laughs> there's some reason, there's some religious right. reason they can't do it, oh, which I think like pisses the Athenians off. Who again, like all of the Greeks, the whole world or most people, not that they weren't sort of free of sort of, you know, ideas of like, you know, the, like atheism or something like that. There's like bits of it, but like, Generally, there was a lot of, like, like superstition was, there was, like, cult and ritual was, like, a very regular yeah. part of life. The or yeah. the Oracle is, I think it's actually kind of really fun. One of my favorite bits about the Oracle, like, in history, the, the Oracle, uh, Delphi, but other places, Delphi just being the most famous one, is sure. there's lots of traditions of cities. You you can reject a prophecy, and cities will do it all the time. Yeah. Or not necessarily reject, but, like, you'll send... <laughs> There are these special delegates who that each city-state sends, and they give money to the Oracle, and they have these little treasuries that they have set up on the hill that are really cool. You can go see them today. Mm -hmm. And the, the the so you go, your delegate goes, the sort of Oracle kind of mutters something in gibberish or whatever, and then the priest interprets it and gives you back basically like a versified reading you take that yeah you, you take that poem <laughs> it's like the scene in hercules where, where hades just yeah. verse um, i imagine there'd be somebody sitting there you're like oh i gotta listen to another poem yep you take that poem back to your home city and then the city itself will debate it or like the powers that be and, and the athenians are parts in herodotus where the athenians are like no 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 we don't like that one take it get a better because i think the initial reading that the athenians get 
following Xerxes is like, you're all going to die. <laughs> and the Athenians <laughs> yep. are like, get a new one. Uh, it's no, a little bit more like to it. One. And then they get one about the famous one about sort of it will f- survive if they sort of have wooden walls. Which are then ships as yeah. they evacuate the city, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. And again, yeah. oracles are also famously, and the Greeks themselves were well aware of this, are sort of famously open-ended in that the oracle, there's like multiple yes. ways the oracle, the oracle kind of always comes true no matter what. Yeah. Because there's just different ways you can interpret it. Herodotus is, if you want evidence of good oracles from Greek history, Herodotus is your source. It's got a lot of the most famous ones. But yeah, it, it, it's just like funny and also like, sacrifice and they get like actually in alexander they have this a little bit where they have the beginning in the battle before the battle they're sacrificing the the bull mm-hmm. and they're doing a um a harvest specs they're they're looking at the the entrails yeah, yeah, yeah. um which was a, a, a one of the sort of practices back in the day and funnily enough so like the the greek oracle itself was the delphi was like famous not just in greece but in the wider world and people from sort of asia minor come over to to greece like famously this guy named croesus who has rules a place called lydia which would get absorbed by cyrus and the persians he goes to the oracle on a couple of or he sends people to the oracle on a couple of times famously croesus misinterprets all of his oracles and and, <laughs> and suffers for it yep but yeah this is you know the, the the sort of i think really also what i'm getting at is in the ancient world this 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 line we would sort of draw down the middle of the aegean between greece and, and asia minor is a non-existent at the time and the greece was really just part of this wider mediterranean yeah. world that we're all sort of i think not that they didn't have their differences but there's also they're more similar to each other in a lot of ways and they're also very much absolutely. aware of each other and in contact with each other absolutely you know although th- yeah if you look at even um shipwrecks from like way earlier in the bronze age you see stuff is traveling to and from very very wide reaches of the world and people are very much aware of each other mm-hmm. it's not like they're bumping into this new yeah. people for the first time and for a, for a long strange. time although there is yeah. fun, funnily enough some of the people that weren't aware were the spartans yeah <laughs> they because they sort of famously like they, they're really slow i think to take on metal coins they there's a famous they don't really go anywhere there's a famous bit much. in herodotus where once some of the greek cities in sort of asia minor like kind of the turkey modern turkey are having problems and they want to they're, they're they're sort of soliciting for for aid from greek cities back in mainland greece and one guy goes i i i'll have to look him up later but one guy one this he's actually he goes to sparta and he's almost there he's like got the spartan king sort of on the like ready to like to sign in put his name on the dotted line for coming to help out this expedition and then the Spar- the king's daughter very shrewdly is like how far is it to get to i think it's sardis which is like one of the main cities and then the guy who's sort of soliciting this aid he says like well it's like it's this many days to sail and then from there on foot it's like another month or two to like march to susa and when the spartans hear that they're like no way hell no yeah we're not going that far and then i think herodotus talks about too what the spartans are actually a little bit anxious when they meet in battle with the persians because they had actually never seen persians in person before so they didn't know like what was going to be like what are we up against there was like an anxiety about that which is funny because persia itself was a much sort of broader multicultural society that runs all the way from you know asia minor and then into like iraq like babylon egypt former parts of Assyria into Persia and like all going all the way to like Pakistan and India this there was this very sort of multicultural society and the Greeks relatively were these kind of isolated we're not isolated but like these sort of a little bit backwater Spartans in particular absolutely very sort of isolationist and would rather just deal with their own 
yeah shit sparta sort of <laughs> because in greece the, the the part of greece that sparta is situated in is Pel- uh, the peloponnese which is almost an island there's a very very thin it's actually an island now because the canal got dug but there's a very thin strip of land that just connects to mainland greece and usually when things are going south the spartas or the spartans are like let's just wall off the isthmus and we'll block off the Peloponnese where we live. And then everybody north of that, you're on your own. Yep. Which like Athens, who's <laughs> beyond that is like, uh-uh, no way. Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> Athens are like, uh-uh, like send some ships, help us out. Cause like, you're, you're really like leaving us out to dry. Like the Spartans just kind of, their instinct very often is to like hunker down. Yep. Yeah. They're kind of isolationist in that way. And that there's a, another, if, if people are reading and they want to sort of get into this kind of the sources a little bit in Thucydides, another historian after Herodotus he has a delegate, there's a delegate of Corinthians in the first book that talk about the difference between the Spartans and the Athenians. And he characterizes the Spartans as being sort of very deliberate and kind of sort of slow to act and, and conservative in like many senses of the word, whereas the Athenians are much more sort of ambitious and quick and sort of far reaching. But yeah. Oh, so uh, some like sort of hot takes and fun facts. I have one fun fact that I can contribute. Yeah, hit me up. That the like seven-year-old little Leonidas was played by Zack Snyder's son. Mm-hmm. And I learned from, as I learned from the commentary, his daughters were also supposed to be in the movie. I think there were going to be like some guards or like there was going to be people standing around Xerxes at one point mm-hmm. that that his daughters were going to be. But yeah, uh, it was his son. There was a little bit of controversy stirred up. Actually, and you know, who weighed in on this was fellow graphic novel writer Alan Moore. But there's that line where Ooh. Leonidas says something about like Athenian boy lovers, um, which is yes. di- like I like I, deeply ironic because the Spartans themselves, and Alan Moore points this out, that the Spartans themselves had institutionalized pederasty. Yep. Both Frank Miller and I think this movie <laughs> got a little bit of flack for that line, which I mean, I think of this movie's problems, I would put that one farther down the list. Yeah. I think the yep. sort of the, the <laughs> problematic sort of views of Western Civ and, and the racism and the ableism sort of are a little bit more. I already mentioned that some of the weapons are recycled from Alexander and Troy from two years prior. I think some of the weapons that the so Persians fun. use, they actually, I know that the the Spartans themselves, they had two shields for the warriors, one for like, like a big sort of fancy looking shield for kind of like close-ups and when they're just standing around because it looks really nice. And then they had a smaller like rubber shield for when they were doing the fights because the big shield was like too big <laughs> for them to, yeah, to like move around. <laughs> There was also, prior to this movie, again, in this weird thing where, like, Hollywood films, we're going to talk about this in a bit, where, like, they tend to come in pairs of, like, Alexander and Troy kind of come at it, like, the same time, and they're they're sort of similar, um, but they're at least, they're similar enough. And we talked about, I think, with Alexander that there was a Baz Luhrmann film in discussion about, with Leonardo DiCaprio. This movie has the same thing. Um, supposedly really? Michael Mann, who I know primarily from Last of the Mohicans, which is one of my favorite movies, yeah. was, he was Great. gonna, he was planning on directing a film based on the book Gates of Fire, which is a, which is oh. a, I haven't read it, but it's a book about Thermopylae. Oh. And then wow. the producer sort of, a producer sort of discovered Frank Miller's graphic novel and bought the rights to it. And then, and then Michael Mann sort of backed off when this movie sort of got the green light. Frank Miller himself was a consultant and producer on this. He talks a little bit in the in the DVD specials. Actually, apparently Paul Cartledge was a consultant for the names and the pronunciation. Paul Cartledge, <laughs> he's like a yeah, he's he's in California, I want to say. I think is he retired? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, he's yes. he's a sort of like, big, he's a sort of big name in Greek history. Then, what are there some fun facts? There's plenty of op-eds that you can read by classicists about this film. For sure, I feel like this one got people really riled up. Yes, um, for all the reasons that we discussed. Yes. <laughs> also, I also want another shout out of an actor that we we've seen multiple times, but Vincent Reagan, who plays his, apparently his name in this movie is just Captain, but he plays the captain like. Yeah. That's uh, Eudorus from Troy. I figured that like out like halfway through. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, it's like this. It's, it's one of those strange, like, what a, what a kind of strange thing to be typecast for. Yes. Like Greek soldier. But then here, I looked at his IMDb. He's going to play, he's going to reprise this role again in, or he would reprise this role again in Clash of the Titans, which he is also in. Oh my as, God. As like another Greek soldier. I'm not even sure if that character's named. Wow. But yeah, just like this guy, the amount of time that this actor has spent in like Greek armor, very strange. That's wild. Yeah. I forgot that Michael Fassbender was in this movie. But yeah, young. Yeah, this is. Young Michael Fassbender. Yeah, he's. Is this kind of. I feel like this is one of his first big movies. It has to be. Yeah. Because he has a kind of minor role. I can't even remember his character's name. I can't remember it either, but he's like one of the ones who speaks repeatedly. Yeah, and there's like. Five of them? He gets the he gets the famous line about fighting in the shade. That's like one of the yeah yeah you know the big sort of lines of this movie. Yeah, he's in it. Um, looking young, looking trim. They apparently they had they had like an eight week boot camp that, as they all described, was hell. <laughs> it sounded pretty bad. <laughs> Sounds terrible. The trainer apparently described it as they they never did the same exercise twice because they didn't want Fine. to like get too accustomed to anything. So they spent eight weeks. And I think Gerard Butler like okay. Actually, I have a question about. Gerard Butler in this film. Okay. Yeah. The main question that has bugged me since I saw this movie is what's going on with his hair? <laughs> okay. I think I've, I think I figured it out. Is it a rat tail? Is it a band? Is it both? I think it's a band. Okay. I think it's like a braided like crown. Okay. It's like, cause King. And so I think it's like a braided crown and it, the crown has a little rat tail. Okay. Because it I looks like the same color as his hair. Does. And so I like can't tell if it's his hair. Does he just have like the wildest? Because it also, it goes around his head a little bit. It was like, there's a thing around his head and yeah. there's a thing that comes off like the little mullet thing in the back. Yep. And I, yeah, I just like, I spent like way, I spent way too long trying because I can't distinguish it from his hair. So I don't know if it is his hair or if it's not his hair. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and on that note, we actually didn't talk that much about the casting in this film. Because I feel like I, nothing really stood out to me as being the worst mm-hmm. like i i don't mind gerard butler as he screams well he's a good screamer he's a good screamer he's sort of he's good uh, he's great at kicking also, guys down wells sure yeah i think he does have like a, a charismatic bent to him though mm-hmm. so it's like i can sort of and he was allowed to be you know tonally different he doesn't scream the entire movie yes like so like I, some like some alexanders we know like some alexanders we know so i think he has uh moments of real personality that come through mm-hmm. that sort of you're like yeah all right yeah. I'm, there's I'm like sensitivity i believe that he loves his wife yeah. in a way that Definitely. i don't think i believed any of the romances from the prior two movies we saw no, exactly on that note yeah we haven't also we haven't really talked about the gorgo subplot at all because i kind of feel like i didn't need it to be there mm-hmm. i guess it's kind of nice that there is a subplot about a female <laughs> character yeah this movie and fails the bechdel test yes but it's like it's still sort of placing a female character in that same role mm-hmm. as like behind the scenes yeah. and have to be sexy to be powerful. Yeah, so like and I sex think, and like poison. Yeah, I think that, that's I, the trope. She's not 
trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's not trying to do that. Her character is not, but that's sort of how all of the men paint her into a corner. Yeah. But I just truthfully don't think that it really was necessary mm -hmm. to be tapping. Yeah. <laughs> I got one more fun fact. Okay. So most of the names in this film are either historical names or actual Greek names. Like they're either historical people like Leonidas and Gorgo and Cyrus and Ephialtes. And then, but then there's one, Astinos, the captain's son, is yeah. named after Zack Snyder's Aston Martin. No. Hand to God. I'm dead serious. Oh my God. Which is a strange thing to name, of all the things to name a character after, your car. Oh my God. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hate that so much. Yeah. So that's because I think, I, I don't know if it was Paul Carlage, but I, there was some story where like whoever the consultant was, when he saw that name, he's like, that's not a name. <laughs> and they're like, shh, staying in there. Because I, I think that subplot is uh, is original. It's been a minute since I've seen the graphic novel, but I think that subplot's original to this movie. Oh, okay. The bit with like the son and the father. Right, yeah. But yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I lost a little bit of respect for this movie. The tiny bit that I had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And we have, and also, I guess we can close. Have you seen the sequel? No. So Nick has, my husband has. Um, don't think I could do it. From the trailer, I I don't know. It's, yeah, I did see it. I think it was one of those movies that I think I was like, I was probably in college and I was at that point where I'm like maybe streaming a lot of movies on my laptop in my dorm. It's definitely like a stream, like, you know, it's probably like, it was probably <laughs> at the top of the list on Pirate Bay for a while. Right. <laughs> it My impression is it's kind of like, it's all the it's all the bad things about the first movie. And it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's like, it's all the bad things about the first movie with like none of the enjoyment factor. Because uh, I, I mean, even today, yeah. like I'd be lying if I said there weren't parts of this movie that like I do kind of in, like the, the fights in general, I think are exciting. Even if yeah. they're like draped in this, this, all these parts that I find very sort of deeply yes. problematic. But Absolutely. it's, yeah, because it's like not, it has none of the fun. It, and also I think it just doesn't do it as well. Like the, the thing, I think Zack Snyder, although I, I think his, sort of screenwriting and his storytelling is tent is shallow and it's kind of the the way i describe it is a lot of other Zack snyder movies feel like a sort of like a freshman philosophy major like that of like the like what if what if like angels were bad like that's a bad it's like which is like not a, a it's a, not to like make light of the dc right. universe but i think it's like not a terribly profound or compelling idea right. or at least in the movie it isn't explored in that way it's it's pretty heavy-handed and right but he he is a, I think he has a really good visual sensibility. Yes. I mean, like the way he composes a shot, I think is is really nice, and it has right. a particular look. I mean, you can you may or may not like the way this movie sort of plays with like color contrast, the yeah. way it sort of sucks out. This movie is just generally kind of brown and red, sort of the, the shade between brown and red. That's basically the color. There's no like blue. There's not a lot of blues or greens, no. or yellows or or things like that. But yeah, the the sequel is. It's just bad. It's about well because um, it's it's about the Mysticles, right? Yeah, it's, and it's, so the, it's about um, Salamis. Yeah, the big naval battle that was really the battle that kind of ended the war. Plataea was important right. too. It, but like, I can't imagine how much CGI would have to go into a huge, expansive, hyper realism naval battle. That's a fair amount. And how terrible that it, it also like it, it suffers we talked a little bit about um we talked in like the alexander movie of like the trouble of when you do battles and like just knowing like the geography of the battle and like where everyone right. is 
And I think like mm-hmm. this movie does it pretty well, like because it's again a very sort of local small. I mean, they're just in this one pass. It's like you just know where right. everyone is. Exactly. Troy, I think, does it fairly well, and Alexander, I think, gets a much more confusing, particularly in like the 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 India battle, Hadaspes. But then uh, the 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 sequel to this has that where I'm like, I have no idea where these ships are or how they're because, <laughs> and again, like naval combat in the ancient world is like kind of convoluted and because. It's, it's basically sure. like all these ships are just, they have like battering rams on the front and they're all trying to ram each other. They, you're basically trying to like position, yeah, position yourself yeah. in such a way that you can like ram the other ship real good, which it's just very, and also the whole movie is like dark. Like it's really difficult to see anything. So it's all kind of, it's kind of confusing. They take Eva Green, they, they, she's Artemisia, who's this sort of famous naval commander who, who actually did fight. Sort of famously, she like escapes one battle by sinking one of her own ships. So the Greeks think she's an ally. She's kind of this reputation as this sort of very tactical and kind of like a sort of tactical genius. But then she, Eva Green just, it's again, it's that sort of like seductress witch archetype thing. Uh, yeah. It's all very, it's, 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 none of it's good. Even though, yeah, it did not enjoy the success that 300 did. Because this movie had a yeah. had a cultural impact. This this movie was ubiquitous, Absolutely. and it's and it still is. Yeah. You know, referencing that people reference this movie constantly still. Yes, um, this is Sparta mm-hmm. all the yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I would say um, if we're going to talk about like things that we would do differently mm-hmm. in our own versions of this movie, I think I would not make this movie. <laughs> yeah, like at all. At all. <laughs> would you even? Would you tell? Let me. Let me. Let me. Bad question. Would you? Would you tell a, a Thermopylae story at all, or barring that, a Persian War movie? I do think that a Persian War movie would be interesting, mm-hmm. and I think it would have the problem of scope if we were trying to say something about mm-hmm. a really big contextual thing. Mm-hmm. But I almost don't want to do it from the Greeks' perspective. Yeah. It, would, it would be more fun maybe mm-hmm. if you were on the side of the Persians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or maybe just have more of the Greek communities come together. Mm-hmm. Again, like uh, we keep coming back yeah. to like the miniseries thing because like it would almost yeah. be more like a miniseries like Vikings or something where like you can kind of mm-hmm. delve into the like the inner politics and it's not that like the Vikings are good and the and the English or the Franks who were ever are bad. There's right. sort of this convoluted. There's like a there's a messiness to the like a political grit to the whole thing that you could totally do sure. with like the Persian Absolutely. Wars. Yeah, I sort of agree. I mean, again, Thermopylae is so charged mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Like, I think it's no accident that a lot of sort of like Second Amendment types or like maybe not even Second Amendment, but like NRA kind of enthusiasts yes. or sort of like the alt-right and things like that really latch on to this kind of movie. Yes. In a way that's, yeah, I think for, I wouldn't want to give them any more fodder. No. Because we don't need another sort of heroization, I think, of Leonidas. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think a miniseries, you could make a whole miniseries about Artemisia or Themistocles yeah. or both. I mean, you could really get into like the weeds with that kind of thing because there's a lot of like funky poli- sure. funky politics going. If you're into that kind of like long form, like Game of Thrones-esque, politicky, yeah. this would make a good... Be perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Even in the way I was actually just thinking like legacies of this movie, I don't know if you've played the assassin's creed game the one that's set during the peloponnesian war but the sort of prologue yeah, to that no, game it's... is thermopylae i think your character is leonidas's like either grandson or granddaughter depending on which character you pick right and it definitely like there's like an intro prologue that like basically just is 300 it's like same looks exactly <laughs> like it 
<laughs> in a way that like this movie is kind of almost inescapable. Like when people think of ancient Greece, they think of this yeah, movie. Definitely. Even though we could get into like the weeds of like the Spartans didn't wear bikinis. Nope. They actually took their capes off before they fought. They fought. Nope. <laughs> they did like to comb their hair. That's one of the, the, the Persians when they first see the Spartans. They have a Spartan. Yeah, they have like an old, they have like an ex-Spartan king on their side who's kind of like Xerxes' advisor. And they're like, what's going on? And the Spartans are like exercising and combing their hair. Persians <laughs> like, what's going on there? And then like, it's just, that's their thing. That's their thing. Yeah, they, have, they do push-ups and comb each other's hair. It's really nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're, they're, they were pretty hygienic. Or, I mean, if combing hair counts as hygiene. All right. I'm out of like fun facts and, and other hot takes, I think. Do you have anything? No, nah, I'm done. All right. So, yeah. Thank you again for listening. We're going to uh, come back next episode and be talking about Clash of the Titans, the 2010 remake. So, yeah. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.